Welcome to Get Your Rocks Off with Mick Wall, the world's leading rock and metal writer. Each week, he'll unpack stories, stories that you won't find in print. So pour yourself a Jack and Coke and get ready to get your rocks off. This episode is brought to you by the Get Your Store. For all of your Get Your Rocks Off merch, including t-shirts, face masks, and yep, Hotel Tropicana coffee mugs, head over to getyourstore.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of Get Your Rocks Off, a very special edition. Uh, no John with us today. Instead, I'm delighted to say um, I've got my own agent with me today, a very famous man in his pr- profession, which we'll get to in a minute. His name is Matthew Hamilton. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Meg. Glad to be here. And Matthew is the... Uh, Owner, founder, figurehead, maestro, magic source behind the, the, the Hamilton Agency. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to explain to people that don't know, you are a literary agent. Yes. What does a literary agent do? Um, a literary agent is like a writer's manager. Um, so you take care of them, um, getting them the deal, negotiating the contracts, sort of supporting them with the, the writing of the manuscript or the proposal, and also being their representative in the industry, sort of if they don't like their c- cover or there's a problem with a pub- publicist or you know, that there's an agent on hand to make the call that sometimes writers don't want to make themselves. So. <laughs> um, well, writers are a bit like musicians. Aren't yes. they? They're, they're flakes. Essentially, they're flakes. They can talk well, it but they can't always walk it not always no <laughs> um yeah so that's that's essentially it yeah and then you do yeah and then you try and develop the project across the world as well here in the states and in foreign territories so um and and you um i mean the reason i came to you um i had had an agent before uh, very in the business in london a very well-known agent um but he didn't specialise... Now, you do lots of things, so maybe specialise isn't the right word, but he didn't really understand or was, wasn't very knowledgeable about the sort of music that I write about, mm. i.e. Mm. rock music, in its myriad forms. But by the time I'd heard of you, it was because here is this literary agent, unlike any that I'd known before, where you're this top literary agent, you do all kinds of books with all kinds of writers, but you do have quite a catalogue of very, very good music writers, not just rock, but across the spectrum. I'm thinking here of Barney Hoskins, who wrote Hotel California, Mm -hmm. The Story of the Eagles. He's written uh, books on the band, uh, Tom Waits... Mm -hmm. Um, the scene in Woodstock uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. The mullet hairstyle. There you go. I mean, yep. he's, a, he's a fabulous writer. <laughs> yep. In fact, he's got a brand new book out now, isn't he? God is in the radio. Yeah, that's a collection of his sort of best pieces. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, Barney's just one of them. I, I'd heard about you from many other music writers. And I was delighted but also surprised to find someone of your calibre that did so much with music writers. I mean, my, my previous agent was a lovely man, but, I mean, he once said to me quite early on, 
when other people I knew were asking perhaps he'd be interested in representing them he was like no I don't want to have anything to do with music writers you're the only one now he may have ended up doing some others I don't know I don't think so but for him it was I don't want to say slumming it but it wasn't excited it wasn't what excited him but you actually have done some incredible music books with some incredible music writers when I say that what's what what are the first couple that <laughs> spring to mind for you? And so, well, well, I mean, you know, just to firstly say that um, that I had been a fan of yours when I was a teenager. So I was actually a heavy metal back in the eighties, <laughs> the full mullet, full you know, flying V badges and all the wow, rest. Wow, amazing! And I used to to read Kerrang every week, and um, so Blimey. so yeah, so I knew exactly who you were. And um, well, that was and, a relief uh, for me. Lucky for me. <laughs> So I'm thinking I'm going to ring this guy. I'm going to say, well, I do this, and I, I'm quite well yeah, known. No, and you were quite the personality in, the, in, the, in that magazine, you know. And, uh, so no, so yeah, so I, I was delighted when I heard from you. And um, and just in terms of just, yeah, focusing on, on music, it was it's partly because it's, you know, I, I, I'm an obsessional music fan and I've been for years. Um, also, I used to be a publisher when I became an agent, um, uh, you've got to try and find clients and you know so you go with what you know and funnily enough around that time music books I don't think they were as well thought of as they are now no and I think not. I think maybe the um, uh, oh, Keith Richards book I think was a big turning point where they had you know James Fox was the ghostwriter it was you know it was almost quite literary in its way you know and also with what, how, how you write too, Mick. So it's, you know, there are... But I think it, within the industry, I think a lot of pop culture entertainment agents were focusing on comedy at that time. It was a big comedy yeah. boom. Yeah. And it was very, very hard to sort of muscle in on that. Whereas with music, you know, weirdly, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> um, it was easier, not, not not that easy, but easier, yeah. So that was... It was so it was a, a mixture of fandom and being quite pragmatic, yeah. I remember meeting my previous agent, I will stop talking about in a minute, but it's just to kind of establish history and context. Our very first time I spoke to him, he said, so biographies, does that interest you? Because that's all I'd done at that point. But, you know, sort of um, fan-type biographies. Yeah. You know, those ones with lots of pictures and, oh, they were great, you know. Um, but their best album, you know. Um, and I just thought, why would I want to... I haven't come to you to do that. You know, I don't no. want that. I've come to you because I want to get away from that. I hadn't realised it was a few years later he brought it up again and I said, but is there any money to be made in that? And he said, oh, yeah. And he started talking numbers. And I was astonished. But then as we had the conversation, he, you know, Keith Richards, um, I'm trying to think of some other big ones, my Led Zeppelin book was a huge seller. I'm not saying on the level of Keith Richards, but it came out 13 years ago and it's still selling more than all my other books. Mm. Um, you know, Barney's book, Hotel California, I, I forget how long ago that came out, but, but you know, that got turned into a TV documentary. Yeah. And also and very prestigious publishers like Faber started investing much more money into the music list and they were doing a whole range of things, you know. I mean, the, the success of the Viv Albertine memoir, the, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Often taking people who even weren't that well-known. Like, I think probably very few people are 
of fans of the slits, but this was a book that just on a sort of literary level sort of took off and got taken seriously, and it just helped with a, with a whole range of other artists too. So. What about the Motley Crue book? Do you think that, cause that came out in like 20 years ago? Yeah, but originally that... I don't think anyone really wanted that here. I think that was always sold on export. That was really? an import here. No yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. So it was sort of, I think there was a huge snobbery, you know, I mean, there still is a bit, isn't right, there, of towards, towards metal, but, um, but yeah, no, I think, I think that was one of those where a lot of the, the regular music people thought, no, 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 that won't do well. And then it just told a ton on, on import. Yeah. Where I thought, I'm, I don't know if it did, um, but what I thought, what I tended to think about that book, because at the time I was editing Classic Rock magazine and I had, you know, I was used to having lots of meetings with publishers and editorial directors and people that knew nothing about rock music you know, they, they had barely heard of, uh, um, you know, Iron Maiden or something, I'm trying, Bon Jovi, you know. Mm. Um, they certainly didn't know anything about Motley Crue. But so many of them sidled up to me and asked me if I could get them a copy. Yeah. Because it, it, became, it, it became that book that even if you'd never bought or enjoyed a yeah, Motley Crue record, whatever, yeah. that book, if you liked books and you liked crazy out there stories... That was the one, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and it kind of set a sort of benchmark. But I wonder in terms of publishers investing money in books, if, if that played any part at all or... In... In, in, in publishers saying there's a real market here beyond uh, some fan book on Def Leppard or something. Yeah, well, I think... I, think, I don't know. I, I sometimes wonder whether it was the rise of the sort of internet really that helped you know, um, where artists could realise they could reach their fan bases direct and then publishers then saw that, that they had platforms they could exploit. And, right. Um, and maybe also a generational thing that, you know, we, we often approach people and they go, I'm, you know, I'm not finished yet. I, you know, I'll save it for my retirement. But, of course, half the people we like are all in their <laughs> 60s and 70s. So <laughs> we're all now, just sort yeah. of generationally, like they thought, fuck, we better get in there and, you know, before we drop dead, you know. So what were, for you as a reader... What were the good, really good music biographies that existed before you began working in that area? Um, my my, my favourite music book of all time is actually David Crosby's autobiography. Yeah, um, that's a cracker. <laughs> which is amazing, which is sort of partly an autobiography, partly a biography, and partly an oral history. Yeah. Um, with three different typefaces. And, and, you know, it worked well because obviously Crosby was so completely out of it for so long that he couldn't remember that much. So right. it, it didn't put too much of a strain on him. Um, but also because you had everyone from Jefferson Airplane and Neil Young and that, that, that whole sort of 60s, 70s Californian scene, it gave you as a whole portrait of an era. Um, right down to the 80s, you know, when he's sort of, you know, being chased with crack and guns and it gets to that stage, you know. So it's, uh, it was just a fantastic book. It made you realise that you could just sort of, what you could do with memoir, you know, that it, it could actually you could actually sort of document a whole age as well. Um, so it felt like it was a... Um, yeah, I'm always banging on about that book. I, yeah. I, I bought a copy yeah. on the strength of your recommendation because <laughs> I think we were saying maybe we could do one like this yeah. with someone else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, um, uh, before there were some good rock books... It seemed to me as a reader... There weren't that many. There yeah. weren't. I mean, I mean, if, if, you, if you liked The Beatles or if you liked 
Bob Dylan or even Elvis or Hendrix, mm. maybe Jim Morrison. You know, there was a there was a, a kind of a literary aspect to those art. Um, yes, maybe not to the artists, particularly in Elvis's case, mm. but they attracted heavy hitter writers. That even if you know you hated those artists, you could appreciate. The story, or I mean, I, I, you know, I was never an Elvis fan. Yeah, I didn't hate him, but I wasn't excited to hear his new record or anything. I'd seen the old movies. I appreciated his place in history, but that this is before he died. But that was it. And then a few years later, Albert Goldman comes out with this outrageous yeah. book about him, yeah. which I realise now a lot of it, it, it he used license as it as all writers do, but. I'm not entirely sure of the accuracy of the book. But at the time, I'd previously read a book by Goldman on Lenny Bruce, which was fantastic, particularly chapter one. It was the it was the 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 ultimate, you know, the chapter one has to be not once upon a time, but you're right in the, yeah. the most calamitous, vivid moment of their story. And it's all just going nuts, you know. And it was a really long chapter. It's almost a book in itself. And I just thought that was so incredible. And then I saw this guy had done Elvis. And I'm like, mm. I was more interested in reading what this guy was doing next than a book about Elvis. But it was about Elvis. And, of course, then he did one on Lennon. Um, but there didn't seem to be any great rock Books. No, because you had a lot of, I mean, endless books about punk. Oh, yeah. And in they, fact, I mean, John, people, you know, real pioneers of serious music writing, like John Savage, I mean, England's Dreaming, you know, where it's, absolutely you know, fantastic sort of book. work of social history or, you know. I mean, you know, it slightly elevates this. I mean, you always sort of slightly forget they are talking about people who are kind of gobbing and, you know, shouting and can't play. And, you, know, and then they, you know, there's all these academics, you know, the whole library's full of punk books, but no one really, yeah, I would say certainly for the music I liked. Um, it felt it felt quite thin, yeah. In um, fact, the closest I got, looking back now, would be maybe there were a couple of Rolling Stones books that I liked in a sort of scurrilous, druggy kind of way. Yeah. Um, there was probably a Hendrix book I'd liked. Was the Charles Murray one was quite good? Yeah, by the time Cross-town that traffic, cross yeah. town traffic. Yeah. Well, again, that was almost sort of a cultural, social yes. history yes. aspect. Um, but I remember um, sitting down in 97, 98 to talk to Iron Maiden's manager about doing their official biography. Yeah. And um, they had had one out in 84, an, an Omni, no, Zomba, you know, like um, for people that don't know, a sort of an A4 size soft cover book, loads of pictures. The sort of book that I always say should have been called Bloody Good Blokes. <laughs> yeah. And I remember Rod saying to me, and this is, this is nearly 15 years after that book, or 12 years after that book, and he said, well, you've got the, the, the Gary Bushell book, um, just, just bring it up to date. Mm. I was appalled. I said, Rod, have you read that book lately? I mean, there's nothing wrong with it for, for its time. But I said, I don't want to do that. I said, I want to do a book. I want to write about Maiden. I want to write a book about Maiden mm. as if I'm writing a book about the Beatles. I want to take it seriously. Mm. I want to know who they really are. And I could see it's like, you know, had 
it was like, why would you we, want to do we took it back. Why do you want to do that? <laughs> but I think there was also a feeling that the, the fans, you know, the Maiden fans, yeah. weren't interested in that. And I'm thinking, at the time, I remember thinking, no, I think they are because mm. my own kind of little shtick, my own twist that I, mm. I deliberately tried to bring to Kerrang, for instance, in the 80s, was um, I felt a bit stimmied that... The, you know, John Savage could write about, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Smiths or whatever it is, you know. Um, and, and and I had Iron Maiden and Lemmy and all these things which I, 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 I now well, I think see that's why you made story. yourself such a character in each piece. I mean, you, you know, I think you could, you, you could have like a thousand words on going to the airport, could you? Yes, <laughs> because otherwise it would have been some heavy metal guy telling me how their new exactly. album is their best. Exactly. Um, but at the same time, I realised quite quickly that actually these guys have the best stories. Yeah. But they don't get told because they don't always attract the best writers. Yeah. So the best writers in the 80s, who would they have been writing? I mentioned the Smiths. I can't... Who else? Uh, the Cure or the Pogues or... Nothing... For my money, nothing wrong with any of those groups. I might not have hardly any, if any, of their records. But I, I got it. I got what people were talking about and why they found it interesting. It just wasn't interesting to me. So David Lee Roth, wasn't it? We always just said... Why do, the reason they write about Elvis Costello the whole time is he'll look like look him. Like him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's something in Definitely. that. Definitely. There's Definitely. something in that. Definitely. But then, you know, I mean, David Lee Roth, I remember him being written about in the UK as a, as a clown, as a joke. Yeah. He's actually a good, be bright bloke. I mean, you know, you listen to him. Bright. Yeah. Super yeah. bright. And, yeah. and if you met him, you yeah. bowled over. Totally. Because it, it was extraordinary. And I'd, I'd written about punk bands originally. Um, and they just weren't that interesting. They hadn't really had many life experiences. Uh, but they'd read a lot of interviews with The Clash and The Jam and, mm. and were trying to sort of be that. Mm. Um, so, it, to use a punk word, it was so boring. Next thing, you're talking to Phil Liner of Thin Lizzy uh, or Dave Lee Roth or a Ronnie Dio or any yeah. of these guys. And although half of them were mental... They'd been mental for years and they'd done it all over the world. <laughs> yeah. And my God, I mean, I, I love a story. And these people had stories. Yeah. And then, of course, you start looking at the music and you go, oh, I get it, I get it. This is proper stuff, you know. But it was very separated off heavy rock music in that era, wasn't it? I mean, you, oh, you yeah. might get the occasional something on top of the pops, but it was operating in a whole other world, wasn't it? Kind I mean, of an alternative. Alternative world. I mean, no one would know that you would go to a festival and there'd be like 100,000 people there. You know, it just it wasn't reflected in any of the... Not on the radio, the media, not no. on telly, nothing. And I think that was probably true of, of, of book publishing. Because I think, I mean, Faber were probably the pioneers in trying to do something more serious about rock. I mean, they even hired... Pete Townsend as a editor oh, yeah. of the early 80s, yeah, didn't they? Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, but, um, but I think the first time that actually Faber ever did a heavy metal book was the, the, the two-volume Metallica book for about 10 years ago. Yeah, but, yeah. Were yeah. you involved in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, right. Yeah, so that was... That, uh, and we didn't expect them to buy it. I mean, it wasn't... I mean, we were sending it out widely. I mean, but they've got one editor there who's a Van Halen 
and sort of hard rock guys. Is, is he still there, Matthew? He's still there. They've not we, got rid of him. He's not been ousted or cancelled. Well, we need to we need to get in touch with him. Send him the pod. Um, but for you then, so how did you get to where you are? In, 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 if you can nutshell it, I mean, take um, time. Well, very, I mean, very brief. I mean, I'm mean, sort of like yeah, English degree. Got a job as a manuscript reader at Bloomsbury, um, which was the publisher that uh, discovered and first published Harry Potter. Um, right, so I was right. there before then and saw what happened when that kind of exploded in the 90s. So, um, in fact, you know, for a long... In fact, they'd even got rid of the editor that bought that book before it took off. And, really? um, and oh, we God. just kept on getting these emails from the marketing manager going, oh, it's won the Smarties Prize and, oh, we're thinking about this bloody <laughs> wizard. And we were all going, you're rolling our eyes. You know, there was all these first editions lying around, didn't pick, take one home, you know. It was, you know it's a fact. Oh, just like with the, always with the wizard, you know. <laughs> Anyway, completely transformed it. But anyway, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I I set up the paperback division there and it did, was mainly responsible for a lot of pop culture stuff and, you know, literary stuff as well. Um, things like sort of Jeffrey Jennedy's, you know, Virgin Suicides and Richard Price and, um, you know, so... But, yeah, um, always drawn towards the... So what was the first rock and or metal book that you would have worked on? God, the first actual metal one. I suppose Barney Hoskins' joke book was probably, I wouldn't say it was metal, but it was sort of appealing a little to that audience, which is the book about Hairstyle of the Gods, which right. we mentioned earlier about the mullet. You yeah. know? And, um, he I, love actually come... I love that title as well, Hairstyle of the Gods. <laughs> um, that was in about 1998. And um, yeah, he'd come to see me to, to talking about one of his more serious books. And then just as he was leaving, he said, oh, I wouldn't be interested in a book about the mullet by any chance. You know, <laughs> so, Funny you should say that. <laughs> Did you have a mullet at any point? No, but I was a former mullet, you know, a former mulleteer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I did feel a, a, a connection to that. Um, and then I think um, probably as an agent, maybe some of the very early ones came about through my very first deals with through Joel McIver. Um, who you know, and I used to do yeah, a pod, podcast used to do the, the Dead Rock Stars podcast. Yeah, and we did like Glenn Hughes of Deep Purple, and sort of quite, you know, relatively. That Glenn Hughes book is great. Yeah, I, I, and, in the know. in the lockdown, yeah. in the winter, in my moment of despair. Yes. Um, you know, because you can't go out. Plus, it's dark and cold, and there's nowhere to go. I I found it. I, I, yeah, because you know, I've. There's books everywhere. And I found it. And I reviewed it when it came out. Yeah. I think I gave it like four stars or something. Yeah. But anyway, through nothing, I just started looking at it. Just, oh, I remember this. you know. And then I started reading it. And I read the whole thing through again. What, what a great book. Yeah, that's a great book. And I feel it was a shame it didn't come out mm. on a bigger publisher. No. Well, I mean, this was the thing. It was sort of starting in those days, you know, with, with some of the specialist houses. You know, and what I was starting to see was the kind of numbers they were getting. So there's one company called Jawbone. Yeah. Who were very they, small, they did the Glenn book. And they did they? the Glenn book. And they actually also did the, the, the Cliff Burton, Joel's Cliff Burton book. That fantastic cover with With the fantastic Burton cover. The... I, wasn't, I wasn't the agent for that. But that was seeing what Joel and Jawbone were doing. Because, I mean, I thought, you know, you know as a big Metallica fan, you know, just, you know, last someone saw that there was a market and you look at the figures and my God, it was outselling most of the music books you'd see on Faber or was any it, of those. Oh, it, yeah, did, did well. Did well because, you know, it had a very passionate, dedicated audience that sort of in the metal area is not dissimilar to say a football 
super it's quite tribal it's oh, quite, yeah, yeah. you know and loyal loyal they never get never grow out of it never get bored you know I mean, and they want to and they like there is and they like physical or, books yeah. and you know so it's you know and i think we did then we did max cavalera of uh, uh Tour and soul fly and um so yeah so we were doing kind of specialist i was doing sort of specialist stuff you know in the and then I don't know. It's just something happened in the music book market. We did this. It was an. It was a sort of semi-authorized book on Dave Grohl, and there was a sort of huge auction for it suddenly. And then you know, like the Metallica book I mentioned, and um, certainly that, that did really well, didn't really it? Really well. This is a call. This by, is a call, um, and that was an interesting sort of era where you could call something semi-authorized, where the author had a connection to the artist, although it wasn't necessarily. And it was slightly kind of marketed as if it was a little bit. It was very skillfully done. Very skillfully done. And yeah, so that, that was good. And then in terms of our actual other, and then it sort of moved into more other, more mainstream memoirs, like Sean Ryder's Twisting My Melon, right. um, which, you know, uh, That came after well. he was in I'm a Celebrity. That came in, yes, exactly, exactly. And um, and he, you know, that was, I mean, that was also a very good early lesson in, you know, how to, how to, I mean, we actually auctioned that book um, without even officially knowing we were going to represent him, you know, because he had li- the, literally the worst manager. You know, we've, we've met a few kind oh, of... Oh, <laughs> this is a... Okay, save, hold that thought, because I okay. am going to ask, because right. that's a very okay. tricky and interesting very area. Very tricky and interesting. There's uh, dealing with the artist, and then there's dealing with the manager. Yes, and some managers are very, very good, and some managers are very, very so bad. But this guy, they're was, always uh, yeah. An so we actually had to ring up publishers saying, you know, look, I don't even know whether we're going to end up representing this, but you know, we can get you the offer to this character, you know. And um, anyway, luckily it all, it all worked out. And, yeah, um, but, but that was a great example of actually how great a ghostwriter can be because. Because the ghostwriter said to Sean, you know, so, you know, summer of 87, you know, Manchester. And you go, oh, fucking breathing. And so the ghostwriter actually researched it and, and knew that on August the 3rd, he was at the Dog and Duck or whatever. And, yeah. you know, bit by bit, he pieced, they got them their memories back. But yeah. so not only did he manage to capture the way that Sean spoke, but also, um, yeah, he... he just to sort of re- reconnect with the memories again, yeah. So it was a very good... It's interesting what you mentioned about ghostwriters. Um, have you ever done a book with... Well, let's mention some of the ones you've done. Um, <coughs> Steve Lukather. Yes. That was with a ghostwriter? That was with a ghostwriter, yes, although, you know... But uh, his voice comes across... His voice... No, really comes across well. I mean, you know, I mean, Steve Lukather's voice is is very... <laughs> Distinctive. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, he's the the kind of main. He's the guitarist and main sort of band leader, really, of Toto. And um, but he's played on a million, a hits million records. So he played on yeah, Beat It by Michael Jackson, and you know, just every single record that came out of Los Angeles in the seventies and eighties, he would have been on. He was, um, but it's despite the fact that he does very kind of smooth music, um, uh, is. You know, <laughs> what what they call a character? <laughs> it's a sort of yeah. I mean, you'll, you'll have a FaceTime with him, but it is literally a stream of filth. You know, <laughs> didn't used to ring you late at night? And yeah, 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 yelling yeah. down the phone. Yeah, but in a way that sort of. I mean, it's partly because I'm such a Toto fan. Literally, I could be abused, and I don't, <laughs> I don't care. I'm just like I've got Steve Lukather on my phone. You know, I mean, that's another issue about the sort of 
when you follow the fanboy star, you know, it's, uh, it, can, it can lead to trouble. But he was fantastic, I'd have to say. And, um, yeah, but hilarious. But my kids would go, you know, then, you know, oh, fucking hell, what the fuck is this? And this prick, and, you know, all this stuff. And then they go, is that the guy that does Africa? You know? <laughs> and again, you just this disconnect and, um, between this very smooth, polished music and this, this you know, amazing guy. Yeah. <laughs> And you've also, um, so there are ghostwriters. Have you worked with any artists that have not had a ghostwriter, have just decided they want to do it yeah, themselves? Yeah, no. I mean, a recent example is, say, Martin Ware of Heaven 17. He's right. written his own book. Right. And, um, God, there are others. Um, any, any rock people? I don't think so. They're usually good at talking, not Very necessarily good at talking. so good at putting it down. Yeah. Um, I don't think of any of the metal guys, no. Let me ask another question yeah. then. Um, they said to me, I'll tell you Will Sargent of Echo and the Bunnymen, he wrote his own, you know, um, which is about to come out I was this week. Say, it's just coming out. It's just coming it? out, Bunnyman, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, so they tend to be... They've tended to be more in the sort of indie pop sort of area. Yeah. I mean, I think other ones recently, like the Mark Lanigan book that did really well, you know, the guy yeah, yeah. trees. I think he wrote that himself. Yeah. I think actually Faber have got a very, and now White Rabbit, which is what the Faber editor's new imprint. They, they, tend, to, they tend to do quite a lot of musician uh, biographies that are written by the artist. Yeah. And, and that's increasingly becoming a... Um, a thing. A thing, yeah. Well, there are the other kind, though, aren't there? The, the, the writers that um, get given permission to write about an artist. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking of um, two really good examples from your back catalogue, as it were, here in the last couple of years. The first, the uh, biography of Peter Grant. Yes. The Led Zeppelin manager. That, that was written by Mark Blake. Yes. But it was done in cooperation with... Uh, Peter's son, son yeah. Warren. Yeah. Um, and they gave Mark access to files, I believe. Oh, yeah. No, we went to see Warren, and Warren said, oh, you know, there's some stuff in the in the garage if you want to have a look. You know, like we all got all the <laughs> crap in the attic. You know, but of course yeah. all this crap's about, you know, Peter Grant and the, the band and, you know, this just treasure trove of stuff to do, you know. Um, Mark found yeah. a letter in there from me to Peter Grant Right. Discussing the biography I was going to write about him. Yeah. Because before he died, he'd given me permission to do that. And I didn't have an agent in those days. I had a, a very good friend who owned some recording studios and had managed bands. And he just sort of said, oh, I'll sort that out. And of course, he was used, bless his heart, he's a wonderful guy, brilliant at what he does. Mm. But what, knowing what I know now, <laughs> yeah. I remember saying to him, um, you know, do you think we could get 30 grand for Peter Grant? He was like, you'll never get 30 grand for a book. You know, I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. So I thought, what does that mean, three? I mean, you know, I'm saying that because these days, if Peter Grant, well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, Peter Grant, he died, so we don't know. But no, a, a, a living person who can promote the book for you and give you oh, yes. 100% yes. access 
you know, you're talking quite. We don't go, need to go into the numbers, but you're talking considerable amounts of it money. Makes, yeah, a huge difference now. You know, and again, because of the way you can promote a book. You know, that if you have the artist's social media channels made available, mm. if you have them, you know, fronting it, it's. Um, well, in this letter that Mark found, which he he photographed and sent to me, that was mm. that was like a ghost. From yeah, yeah. Twenty five years before, I. I, I I, I was clearly following up on a phone call. Yeah. And I think the gist was, you know, there's not a lot of money in it. No. Um, and he was like, well, I don't care. You you keep the money then, you know. Um, yes. Um, but I'd, I remember at the time thinking that that wasn't especially amazing because <laughs> there wasn't going to be much money in it anyway. No. Um, so you did the Peter Grant book with Mark. Yeah, and then we also did, I mean, another example of that where you're working with an estate, you know, um, which is uh, Paul Rees did a biography of John Entwistle. And which, again, we had the family. And again, it was the visit to the garage and this, all this, you know. Which is amazing. Yeah, exactly. So it's, um, no, and, you know, and... You know, it's slightly similar to, I suppose, what we're just done about the Ronnie James Dio book, too. You know. Yes, indeed. Um, in fact, you've got it on the desk here, I, I do. Yeah. Um, uh, you also, we'll come to that in a second. Um, you also look after the Frank Zappa estate. Yes. Which is very intriguing to me, except from what I gather from talking to you about this over the years... There's still no sight of a book? No, is it no, finally? it is. The book is, is happening. It's now going to be a book about the mothers, mothers of invention. Um, you know, so it's most gone of them through. still around? Or? Yeah, but I think it's more, you know, there might be a sort of epilogue in which it sort of, you know, takes the, you know, covers the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, etc. But I think the focus of it is actually when they're at their the sort of classic era. Well, yeah. That's what people yeah. want to know, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, but no, that that came about yes because uh, Frank Zappa's widow Gail Zappa, who's sort of a legend in her own right, you know, um, uh, saw that this uh, that the the writer had written a book about Frank's favourite composer, and that and then he was anointed to do it. You know. Who was the favourite composer? Is Varanasi or no? Or oh God, what's he called? Varese? No, maybe yeah. Electronic classical. Yeah, very difficult kind of avant-garde. Varese, probably. Maybe, yes. Yeah, yeah I should remember. Someone will remember. Re yeah, it's Don't be ridiculous. Of course it's not Varese. <laughs> it's too, yeah, it's a bit, bit up, upscale, that one, for me. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, but I think she was so clearly so amazed that there was not a, you know, there was someone else who'd actually even heard of him and actually had even written a book about this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he thought, to your point, you know, the stars had aligned and, and that's how it started. But wasn't there this long gap Well, where... then Gail died and, you know, leaving a very... Yeah, I mean... You know, complicated. The the the, the people running the estate now are, are, are doing things in a more conventional way, should we say? So, um, so yeah. So it's you know, there's a there's, there's a lot there, and it's yeah. But now the 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 version of the book that's going to be actually see the light of day in a, a year or two is going to be the mother's invention. So, Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's kind of the story. That a lot of people want, want anyway. Exactly. Because it's that era where anything goes yeah. and they're at their craziest and also making some of their best music. Exactly. So, so. Um, uh, Now, it's no secret that your favourite group... <laughs> I'm saying it's your favourite. It might not be. Maybe it's just one of your favourites. It's pretty high up there. Yeah. Is Journey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when we first met, I remember you, you... One of your kind of wish list items was... <laughs> 
a biography of Steve Perry. Autobiography. Auto, sorry, yeah, no, yeah, an autobiography, yeah. a memoir, yeah. yeah. Now, I wasn't quite able to do that. No. But I got us very close indeed to doing a Neil Sean uh, autobiography. Yes. Um... I still don't know what happened. <laughs> no, no, we really... We, we, we spent uh, about a year and a half, two did. years well, on well, that. Well, first of just... all, we flew to San Francisco, didn't we, to have a meeting. We arranged did. With, via his lawyer, yeah. who, was, um, who himself was a super fan. Yeah. So it really was sort of... I can remember th- having dinner with you and Tony. Yes. And I, it was like, I'm not in this conversation. Not because you were being rude, but because the two of you were... No, I know. ...in a journey nerd store. Of, of nerd almost sort of borderline <laughs> mental illness <laughs> <laughs> no because I think I think um, Tony had become the lawyer because he didn't he didn't he have one of Neil He'd I think Neil it. was selling a guitar and so he said I'll buy it for you at this at your asking price if you meet me in San Francisco and we can jam yeah man, <laughs> man. man. And, 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 Neil, and they did and Neil said <laughs> yes yes <laughs> So he was our fixer, wasn't he? Well, more than our fixer, he was our he was, you know, he was our go-to yeah. guy. And we, I remember us thinking, you know, you know, because I think you know there was no guarantee that Neil would actually show up for the for the <laughs> meeting, and that there was the prospect of flying we to San Francisco. And, and, and I, I, I almost up. bottled it at one point, didn't I? Yeah. Did you? Well, oh, I was just thinking, oh, is this crazy? You know, because actually, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I actually, you know, decided I had to propose to my wife. I mean, obviously you know, loving her, et cetera, but, you know, <laughs> is that I, in, in the height of my um, journey obsession about 15 years ago, took her to the journey convention in Barnsley, which was at a working men's club. And hey, um, it was a journey convention. <laughs> there was a journey. This was, this was before Don't Stop Believing was in Glee. This was before right, The Sopranos. Right. This was before The Revival. This is when... Just a dedicated... This was just sort of my midlife crisis, <laughs> you know, and that I... And that, you know, nobody had heard of Journey. I always just... People would glaze over. And then I saw that there was a Journey convention happening in Barnsley. In Barnsley. In Barnsley, with a live feed from the third replacement singer. <laughs> That's proper no, convention. Proper stuff, convention. Isn't it? it was all you know, and, you, and we got there, and it was sort of like it's all these, and you know, and, and we spoke to a couple of the fans, and they said, "Oh, you know, where you come from?" They said, "Well, we come from London." They go, "What the fuck are you doing?" You know, <laughs> like, we've just come from up the road. It's like, <laughs> my wife it was sitting there, and of course, you had to sort of sit there for like then in this working men's club for ten hours. <laughs> You know, where there was a raffle to get the sort of the sketch of the current singer who I didn't like, you know. <laughs> Which one was that? Steve? No, I, I'm fair. Steve or Jerry, yes. Mm. But, um, but the, there'd been a lot of controversy around that time about the, within Journey, well, called Tapegate, where they'd been exposed using. Yeah, that's right. Which, of course, in Journey, you, you can't be doing that, you know. And, um, well, Neil Sean, when I... Because we went to San Francisco, then we went yes. to Los Angeles later that year to watch them play, play. the forum with yep. Def Leppard, and then a couple of months after that, I went. And back you stayed to San at the Francisco. same hotel, so there they all were. Uh, Sun- the, Sunset Marquee. Oh yeah, well, that's, yeah, on that trip, second yeah. trip, yeah. yeah. Two months after that, I went back to San Francisco, and Neil put me in a hotel, and we did him and his wife. We did four or five hours of interviews every day. Um, and it was during one of those where I mentioned Tapegate, and and I and I was trying to say to him, 
I don't care. But you can see, you can see. I said, for, and I remember saying to him, for instance, you know, like the Eagles, you know, if it came out that they were, it would be really, mm. and he looked at me and he just went, nodded like that. Mm-hmm. I went, no, Mm-mm. not the Eagles. No. He went, yeah, the Eagles. He said, everybody, man. Everybody. No, I know, I know. He said, because if one of us doesn't, we sound terrible sure, compared to everybody sure. else. But there's such a cult within Journey about <laughs> Steve Perry and that the that, that, that controversy that Journey should even exist beyond without him. Without him. And, um, Although they did exist before. Yes, but in that sort of... That's not the real... It's not the prog jazz thing that <laughs> no one likes, you know. <laughs> well, that's what they got Steve Perry in for, was to fix that. So they could... That's right. That's right. But Neil didn't happen. I'm not going to dwell on it, but... Um, no. Have you had many reverses like that? I mean, I, I've obviously had tons, but not... I, I don't think, think going quite so like close that. to the... Yeah. Yes, that that that's yeah, last minute reversals. I mean, I think they I mean. I mean, I think there are lots of examples of people having second thoughts. You know, often when the moment of truth, and you know, it's like when the deal's about to be done or the offers come in, and suddenly this thing that you've been talking about it's about to become real. And you know, maybe sometimes, you know, certain band members haven't consulted other band members. Maybe you know, and you suddenly worry about the consequences of doing the book that maybe. Yeah, so maybe we assumed that some things had been discussed that maybe hadn't. Or we can only speculate, but... Um, there's, a, there's another... I won't mention a name because it's still quite recent, but there's another very, <laughs> very, very famous British singer regarded as one of the all-time greats who, as you know, I've been pestering about doing a book for quite a few yes. years. And we got to the point, you and I, earlier this year where we had a conference call with him and his manager and various other people. I don't even know who they were. And it all seemed to be tickety-boo and I'd written some stuff. And and um, and suddenly, and my feeling, and I don't know, I, 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 I've never been told this, it's only my theory, um, is they took that idea. I don't think they suddenly went, oh, it's not a very good idea. I think mm. they went, this is a really good idea. Mm. But how about we go somewhere else and, and keep all the money mm-hmm. and, and just... Because I've never heard anything back from them since. No. I got a very cursory email about a month later saying, um, um, you know, you're still in the running. Yeah, I'm like, I'm still yeah. in the fucking running. <laughs> I've been talking to you about this for 10 years. Yeah. Um, and also the conversation before the conference call was all about how... I was the perfect person to do it. I got on so well with this bloke. It was a loving. Yeah. I thought it, I really, I didn't, I mean, nothing's ever a done deal. To, no. It's a done deal, but it's her, it, it's her, I should know better by now, but it does, it gets on your wick, doesn't it? No, you have to be, yeah, you have to get very hardened. I mean, obviously as an agent and, and, and writers, I mean, you know, rejection, reversals, failure, it's... <laughs> You yep. have to be. Oh yeah. You have to kind of roll with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I would say that you know sometimes you know when you're you know when we're dealing with artist management and in in fact musicians that you know they you know we, we we come from a world that's that's that, that's not known to them. You know the the book world is it, it, you know they don't quite know how it works. It's not no. in their comfort zone. They're obviously very successful at doing a particular thing. They have a sort of you know they know what they're doing. All their advisors know pretty much. You know, not always, but you know, not always, uh, not always. <laughs> yeah. 
But I think when you come along with a book and suddenly it, you know, I think it, it can, funnily, it's just, I, you do notice there's an insecurity or there's, you know, um, or sometimes actually or a delusional, you know, a lot of them think, you know, like, oh, I'm going to get a million dollars, you know, and actually they don't realise how, f- most books don't sell very much. I mean, even, I mean, even Bruce Springsteen, you know, his own book, you know, if you look, think of the absolute optimum selling book, you know, sold in this country 200,000 copies. Now that's his, that's Bruce Springsteen. That's yeah. with him coming over, yeah. doing endless interviews, being available. You know, it's Bruce in, Springsteen in all the newspapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you think media. that that's okay, so that's the so when you get some of these other guys who, although very respected, are <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, um, the expectations can either can be well. So you, you're not yeah. So I suppose what I'm saying is you're often not dealing with people who kind of not quite know what where they are or what they're doing when it comes to the book negotiation you know and also you get these odd situations i'm sure this is the same in every area of life where something just seems that doesn't seem right you know um uh what's his name the uh drummer steve gorman in the black crows yeah now I, i don't know if this is true but i was told that I think he got something like $200,000 advance for mm, his book. Mm. Now, um, I, I used to work with the Crows many, many years ago when they were first starting out. Steve Gorman is an absolutely entertaining and charming man, smart too, mm. um, and he's a drummer. And, mm. and drummers often have the best stories. Yes. Right? So, but putting that all aside, um, you know, that's that's... Crazy. considerably more than yes um uh, i've seen for people that aren't even remote that, that, that are like 10 times more famous than yeah. the drummer in the black that's Crows. right that's right but someone told me that's because there was someone at the publishers who just loved the who black just Crows. loved it you just need that stroke of luck and then you know and then if you find two competing <laughs> publishers that you can play <laughs> off against each other then yeah it's you know but often yeah it's it's timing and luck can be a big reason because normally that publishers pretty much want the singer. Even the guitarist sometimes could be, yeah, do they know, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, the other the amazing thing is, I mean, obviously there are some fantastic music book editors who are extremely knowledgeable, but, you know, they're not operating on their own. They've got to operate within big corporations. And it is extraordinary how, how little most people at publishing houses know about music, I mean, you know, and who they've not heard of, you know, and... So, um, you know, like, for example, um, at, at White Rabbit, you know, um, you know, it's great when you actually have an editor who can actually go to, um, you know, an acquisition meeting, you know, where they've literally barely heard of anyone apart from Steps. <laughs> you know, or, you know, to then talk about Electric Wizard and get yeah. them excited, you yeah. know. So, you know, but, yeah, so you're often dealing with um, yeah, people who don't quite know um, who these people are. I mean, we had that with Neil Schoen, didn't we, originally? We were very concerned that... Yes. That, uh, we overemphasized, you know, again and again and yeah. again. Yeah, and maybe we did overthink that. Yes, and, yes. And then they go, but isn't he Steve Perry? What about Steve Perry? And, of course, Steve Perry's a recluse. And, um, and then there's also, you know, do people... You know, I, I think, you know, it'd been, it'd been unfortunate that there is a sort of 
you know, evangelical Christian Trump supporting keyboard player in Germany <laughs> <laughs> who only recently had, you know, who was married to the Trump's pastor yeah. um, who had done his yeah. book called Don't Stop Believing. Yeah. It's sort of, you know, it, yeah. it kind of, so, you know. Yeah. Just were, as we're trying to just talk as we were about trying, Sean, you know. here he is. And he's, and he's called it Don't Stop Believing. Yeah. Very of course, annoying. Yeah, and I think it's hard for Journey wanted to do his own story, but of course he's been in Journey since 1973, so it's it's hard to separate the band from the thing. But but no, there's been there's been other sort of I think working with your yeah, don't meet your heroes is um, <laughs> in his case I would still say that we had a fantastic couple of trips and oh, yeah. you know and the whole experience was was I I still think even though we ended up losing <laughs> losing money on that one. Um, you know, it was it was pretty priceless, I have to say. You know, it was great. It, it, it also, I mean, I thought I'd seen it all, but it, it also kind of afforded us a peek into the into the elite the, management and how crazy it can be. Really yeah. crazy, yeah. Really crazy. Yeah. And sometimes when I'm interviewing a musician over the years, um, it's not that I don't believe them. It's just that. Until you're actually there in a room, yeah. like we were in LA at the show, and these weird people turn up, and um, you suddenly think, "Oh, okay, he did sound crazy when he was telling these stories, but actually, this is crazy. Yeah. This is crazy." Yeah. Um, doesn't mean he's not crazy, and it gets even more. Complicated. No, I'm sure he's everything. Everything he was saying was true. I mean, it seemed like it was a very, and I think you know, shortly after we were there, then they had this kind of coup d'etat happened within the band where the bassist and the drummer you know called the board meeting and tried to take over the journey name you know and it, so it's it's a yeah it's a yeah it's a you know it, it's the gift that keeps on giving that band you know but uh. <laughs> the other couple of items you mentioned when we very first met were number one was ronnie james dio mm. who again was someone i'd already interestingly i i felt the same way and i'd already made a few inquiries about because you know, I'd first worked with Ronnie and Wendy Dio in 1980, and stay and and again as the years went by, and we stayed in touch, and um, you know, I'd brought it up with Wendy a few times, but it was only after we met that it mm. it, it started to get real, mm. and I remember going to meet her at a hotel in Kensington in London, and um, she just rung in the afternoon. We, I didn't. It wasn't like it was planned. She turned up I'm here come and meet me and I rang you I remember I hadn't I, did, I wasn't wearing nice clothes and I hadn't sort of shaved <laughs> for days and I really didn't feel I was at my best you weren't feeling fresh no. and, I, and I rang you and I said Matthew can you said I've got to pick the kids up from school and I said I know I know but could you just put in an appearance or something and you did and what I loved was you turned up with your children yes <laughs> to me that put you in the upper echelon of, of all-time agents because my previous experience was not like that. No. At all. Um, but I remember thinking, do you know what? I don't even care now if this pans out because this is so interesting that you had that level of commitment. Yeah, and no, I brought my daughter. It was actually my son who was sort of discovering metal for the first time, age nine. Oh, was it just he your was... daughter? It wasn't your son? No, he couldn't. He, I, I think I just had my daughter. I don't All know right. why. I don't All know right. why my son was at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but he was obviously gutting. He was, I was in a you hurry. Met, you met Theo's wife, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that took a long time, didn't it? I mean, it we, did. We, that was in London, and then we met Wendy again in LA on the Neil Schoen trip. 
And then there was other times. I think that's right. I mean, it's the perseverance. I mean, you, you know, um, I suppose, you know, and Stephen Wilson, you know. There's a, you know well, we've got the DO book on the desk. I'm yeah. going to do a separate pod about that. Yes. So we don't have to get into that right no, now. No, but, but... But Stephen Wilson, we're just finishing up with. Yeah. And, for, you know, that was conversations that went back, you know, years. years. And, you know, suddenly the time is right. There are other times, that, you know, that I mean, there's one... That, <laughs> There's one very famous punk artist who um, whose book would do very, very well. And the manager's famous for saying, you know, yeah, really great. Great to hear from you. Give us a ring and, you know, send us another email in three months. You know, literally for 10 years this is happening. Not just to me, but it's about anybody in this game. So have you checked in with, you know, <laughs> checked in with Doug? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, you said get back in three months, you know. Oh, my God. I remember having a very similar conversation this guy in LA, and I'm doing my pitch, and it's at a swimming pool in a hotel, because I've just seen him, and I've just zeroed in. You know. He's like, I hear you, I hear you. No, man, I hear you. I hear you. I'm like, yeah. okay, I've got through. Yeah. Never heard from him again. No. Or I remember, that this has happened to me more than once, when I was working with Don Arden, who was Sharon Osborne's father, yeah. the original kind of godfather of rock, for people that don't know, Don had been a song and dance man. He'd been an original black and white minstrel. Mm. You know. mm. um, and then in the 50s, as Music Hall died and rock and roll came in, he ended up managing Little Richard, yeah. Gene Vincent, uh, loads of these one-off, you know, the singing cowboy or something, you know, loads of those sorts of things, Peggy Lee and yeah. uh, Jane Mansfield. Yeah. And then in the 60s, he hits Pader with... Um, Quite a few bands, like the Nashville Teens, but the Small Faces, and then the Move, and then Black Sabbath, and the Move turn into Wizard, and turn into ELO, or ELO, and then Wizard, whatever it was. And um, I remember uh, Don saying to me, because he was, he was, you know, Don was the guy who held Robert Stigwood over the balcony and threatened to kill him. <laughs> Don was the guy that, that, that took, um, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, it's in my book, folks. Um, uh, who managed the move and was another kind of villain in London. And Don went round there, told me this story, it's in the book, how he mm. went round, Max, no, uh, Clifford Maxwell. He went round there and Clifford Maxwell said to him, I know where you live, Arden. <laughs> and Arden goes, do ya? And he literally said he had his men pull the phones out of the walls. That was always the first thing he did. He said, then he went to his private office. He said, and he was sitting there smoking a big cigar. He said, I got hold him by the hair, pulled his hair back, took the cigar out of his mouth and drilled it into his forehead, the lit end. Beautiful. And I went, wow. I said, and what was he doing? He said, oh, you know, crying and moaning and, you know. God. And and so anyway, at one point, Don says to me, he always called me Kid. He was like one of those guys. Beyond the, he was from Manchester, an uh, old Jewish man from Manchester. He yeah. lived in LA all his life, you know. Like, kid, Kid, this book is going to change your life. It's going to change your life. And I thought, it's going to change my life. This book is going to change my life. And as we're doing it, the Osbournes comes out the first season, and suddenly it's all just yeah. uh, the one of the big broadsheets did a, a cover of their Sunday magazine about the book. Channel Four started sending around people; they were making a, a documentary on the making of the book. 
um, Don will be telling me the most scurrilous stuff while the cameras are there. I'll be kicking him under the table going, we can talk about that later, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, like, yeah. dreadful stuff. Um, but I've heard that from other people. You know, there was a publisher read one of my books, Paranoid, and immediately wanted to work with me on something. It wasn't quite clear what. He said, I'll come to your house. I lived in a tiny two-up, two-down in Oxfordshire at the time um, on my own. It wasn't, it wasn't, I'm like... Now, let's not go to my house, you know. Um, <laughs> but I remember him hugging me. I'd been to his private members' club to discuss ideas, and he hugged me. And he, and he said, listen, I'm going to you know, Venezuela or somewhere. I'll be back in three months, you know. He said, but this is going to change your life. Yeah. And I, I literally never heard from him again. <laughs> I never saw him, heard no. from him, heard of him, no. nothing. He vanished into the night. So you get a lot of that kind of bullshit, don't you? You do, you do. No, and, um, and but although you do also get, there are some great, I mean, you know, to be fair to some of them, some of them are great managers. I mean, you know, um, say somebody like Stuart Young, who was the ELP manager. Yeah. And dealing with him, you know, did a book with Greg Lake, you know, just as he was, you know, as he was very unwell. And right. Just the sort of the level of kind of care and, you know, just where, where someone who was a sort of really decent guy, it was, um, you know. We nearly worked with Stuart again a few years ago. Yes. Because he was, the, not anymore, I don't think, but at the time he was the co-manager of uh, Foreigner. Foreigner. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So I'm not going to, you're not allowed to say Steve Perry because I know that's your go-to number one choice. <laughs> But I did actually get introduced to him, you know. Oh, it was yeah. very frustrating oh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. Um, Ian Winwood, who's another Kerrang. He co wrote, co did the Metallica, Metallica book. book. Yes, and he was into Steve Perry amazingly came out of hiding after 25 years to release this sort of very sad, melancholic album. <laughs> <laughs> and he was over promoting it. And I, you know, we'd never thought we'd seen it. And, and, and Ian rang me up and said, I'm, I'm interviewing him. Do you want to come along? You know, but you can't mention you're an agent. You know? <laughs> so I had to go like a sort of like spod fan, you know. And, um, but see, he, was very he was very gracious, you know, as, as I got my selfie and my, you know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, I, yeah, I, I can remember because my friend Kevin Shirley um, had worked with Steve. He produced the, um, what was the album in 95? Arrival, was it? Um, uh, 2001. Was it 2001? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 1995, that one. Oh, Trial by Fire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The one where they got back together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, um, and he had quite a few Steve Perry stories to tell. But I remember he, he was telling me about <laughs> the, um, the um, what do you call it? You know, like an AA meeting. What do you call those yeah. places? Yeah. Well, wherever, wherever yeah, Steve went. Know. Yes. Kevin was aware of it. Yeah. And I remember hatching a vague plot, probably after a couple of beers in my mind, and maybe even saying to you, Yeah, yeah let's try. Why don't you go there? I know, I was wrong. <laughs> I met him, I thought I was going to slip it in. And, and, but, and Ian said, you know, when we arrived at the suite, because then there was suddenly, who is this bloke? And, you know, it was a bit awkward, you know. <laughs> Steve was in the not... loo at the position, with the suite at the criterion. <laughs> and then out comes Perry, you know, and then the first thing it goes, this bloke is like a Catholic with the Pope. <laughs> 
thanks, Ian. <laughs> thanks, Ian. Brilliant. <laughs> and then, yeah, I think Perry said, yeah, this must be like spotting Bigfoot. And he said, oh, it is. Hello, Steve. Oh, how <laughs> funny. How funny. Yeah, I mentioned a couple of people, like, you know, Luca Thur and everything, just to sort of show that I wasn't sort of just some rando, completely rando, you know. But, uh, but in the end, I just had to keep it pure. I couldn't, couldn't do it. It's difficult, isn't it? I, I as a kid... Working, uh, with the, working with the... Yeah, it's... I, I was... A, I loved Manchester United as a kid in the 60s, of course, George Best. Yes. And... Um, you know, a lot of identification there. Many, many years later, before he died, I was on my way to meet Sharon Osbourne mm. for dinner. This is in, like, 1992. And she... I don't know what the club was called, but a club in London, we're going to meet there. And it was a nightclub that had a restaurant. Um, and we're going to meet there at six. So I turn up at six. Well, I, I plan to turn up at six. Um, and as I'm walking... It's in Pall Mall or somewhere, Mayfair, you know... I'm walking down this very wide pavement and I'm aware of this bloke because it's such a broad, wide pavement. There's another guy walking exactly the same speed as me in the same direction, but slightly shuffling figure. Yeah. It's George Best. God. Right? And, you know, for a second you kind of go, <laughs> that bloke yeah, looks a bit yeah. like George Best. That bloke is George Best. And it's like a hundred yards. It's really, we're both, and yeah. all the way there, I'm thinking, shall I say hello? Yeah. Shall I say hello? Shall I? No, he must get this all the time. Yeah. Leave the bloke alone. Leave the bloke alone. Anyway, we get to the club. He goes in the club no, as well. Meant to be. We're literally going in together. I'm still too nervous to say anything. So I'm thinking, he must be thinking, who's this guy following me into the club? You know. So we go in and the club is empty. There is no one in there. So we go into the bar area and he sits at a table there and I sit at a table here and the bloke behind the bar asks me what I want and then he looks at George and he goes, I'm making a sign here for a very large drink. drink. He looks at George and goes, you know, like, large one? He doesn't say large one, but it's like... Mm. And George is like, gives a thumbs up, yeah. And, um, and then it was like something out of a Fellini film. The guy brought George over, gave me my beer brought George's huge whatever it was and then sat down and said all right George uh, what have you been up to today then been working George oh I you know <laughs> and Sharon is like an hour and a half late and I'm sat there the whole time and the club doesn't get going till like midnight so George is there because he obviously wants to drink alone and I'm there like the fly in the ointment and I don't know what to do. And I don't know... Oh, no. And I'm also thinking, will you ever get another chance no, in exactly. your life to say hello to George Best? And in the end, I bottled it. You I, bottled I, it? I did. Oh. I couldn't. I just couldn't. I couldn't. couldn't. I kind of had missed the moment. If I'd said something, so we were going yeah. in, and I'd said, oh, we're both... Huh, I'm here to see Sharon, you know, something. But I just... I, did, I had no words. No. And again, no words. what if it goes wrong? I mean, when I... I mean, I'm... Spurs fan and in 1981 Steve Perryman our captain was doing a local appearance at the, the local sports ground and I went there with my ball and sort of froze and he goes do you want me to sign that or what you know he's such a wanker is he well he was that he day was in that 1981 day, yeah. maybe he's a lovely bloke but you know it was like the captain of Tottenham was like dissing me it was like kind of yeah, I never kind of quite so I've always been wary the one time I did it as a fan and then it turned into a book was, um, was actually Mike, Mike Rutherford of Genesis, right, yeah, where yeah. I was in a cafe 
um, with a sort of colleague, and in walks Mike Rutherford. And I was going, oh, my God, it's Mike Rutherford. <laughs> and she was, thinking, she was like, oh, whatever, Genesis, who cares, you know. <laughs> but I really cared. And I said, oh, should I go up to him? And she goes, okay, yeah, yeah. But oh, he probably gets it all the time. He goes, nobody's stopping him. <laughs> <laughs> so I did so I went up there with my card going you know oh, I love your work you know but actually if you ever want to do a book you know let me know you know oh, he was very polite and nice and you know and then three months later an email came through you know and um, amazing yeah so that was uh, and that was actually very quite an early lesson in which you have to be quite careful I think if you are in a professional relationship to keep your because actually they don't really like fans very much, you know. I think as this a, is the this dirty is, little secret of the music a, business. People don't realise. And I remember we were getting on really well. We were having breakfast, and I asked him whether he'd used the bass pedal on the Seconds Out live album from 1978. Oh, for God's <laughs> and he sake, literally, man. it's literally, if I've done a fart or something. It's like, <laughs> fucking, it was, He's you like, know, oh, uh, no, oh, God. You're you that know, guy. Just, you're that guy. You know. <laughs> Whatever, you know, any literary cred I had just sort of evaporated at the table. You know? I, I still get asked all the time, you know, for books, uh, for other things, uh, and they go, oh, do you, do you say Aussie? <laughs> do you have any pictures of you and Aussie together? I'm like, God, no, no. no. I mean, in the days of camera phones, I th I'm sure I would have had a few pictures taken. But in my day, you had to pull out a camera. You know, unless you go, you couldn't do that. You know, you unless you go shameless, like the, the you know <laughs> the, the the journalist who wears tour t-shirts to if you. <gasps> There is a, an acquaintance of ours who... Actually, he was there when I went to see Steve Perry with the full picture of Steve Perry on his chest. You know, there's the T-shirt. See, he spoils it for the rest of us. And, you know, with the, the albums. and the, But it was quite good because I came in after and, him. And compared to him... Compared to him, I'm... You're a norm. Oh, I, I barely can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. So yeah. what's on the horizon for Matthew Hamilton? Oh, um, just, um, what, what, what have we got? So I'll talk about nice managers and also writers doing themselves of just doing, um, just completed a deal with for Jazz Coleman of Killing Joke, which is going to wow. be, that's going to be an amazing. Are you representing him? Yes, yeah. Wow, what's that like? In, completely unlike anything. He, he, he didn't write a regular proposal. He wrote it as a sort of letter to the editor. And, you know, right. and you've got... In you know, blood. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, you've got, I mean, he's kind of a genius because, I mean, he's mm. not only was he there with this sort of punk psychedelic group and, but sort of hanging out with gangsters and all these kind of weird Alistair Crowley. I think he was Jimmy Page's mentor on the Absolutely. Crowley stuff, yeah. But he's also a classical composer, you yeah. know, sold like a billion records and, you know, but he's. Jess Coleman has. Yeah, and he's from this very. Uh, this kind of very intellectual Brahmin, sort of in Indian, Anglo-Indian family, and his his brother's like a famous physicist, and wow. his mum was like mentor to Brian Jones, and you know, anyway, wow. it's like the most mentally, completely, you know, incredible. Right. This letter, right. anyway. Right. So yeah, so. Um, so what you're doing the deal or you've done the deal I've done the deal out? so yeah so White Rabbit will be doing that book and, amazing um, oh, that's perfect and it is it is and that's a case of a manager who is very very you know actually facilitating and making everything very straightforward so that's uh, <laughs> um, and um well, I think I've got a couple of books from you, Rick, haven't we, coming up? Yeah. We've got the DO, which is on the table, and I'm yeah. going to talk about in the very next podcast. Um, but the Stephen Wilson. Yes. 
Now this is, uh, and we'll end on this because we, we, we need to end, but um, it's a very unusual book. Mm -hmm. He, you were chasing him for years. Yeah. And even years before that, when Porcupine Tree was still going, um, a very old kind of publisher, mentor, friend of mine, Malcolm Edwards, mm. really big into Porcupine Tree. And I took him to their final show. And he said, I'd love a book on them. And in those days, uh, so sweet. In those days, this is like 11 years ago or something. He said, the only trouble is, Mickey, is I couldn't pay you, you know, what you would mm. normally get. So do you think there's another writer you could recommend that would do it for a poultry, you know? And I, and I, and I, I set him up with Alexander Milas. You know, I don't know if you know Alexander. Very good writer. Mm. was the editor of Metal Hammer, mm. American, very, very intelligent, lovely man. And it just didn't pan out in the end. And then Porcupine Tree broke up. And I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I stopped following the story, essentially, because I had other things going on. And then um, I came back into the Stephen Wilson story in terms of picking up with uh, To the Bone, funnily enough. And, um, but then when we met and you said, I was like, oh, mm. I thought I was the only one, <laughs> me and Malcolm were the yes. only ones that thought there'd be a wonderful book there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But he never wanted to, he didn't want to do, I was born, then I did this and I did that. He, he wanted something different. Mm. And... Um, we haven't really got time to get into it all, but it is different, isn't it? It's very different. different no, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's a, a, as everything he does. And I think he's, you know, I mean, he's an interesting type of artist, you know, in terms of people who necessarily aren't that well known in the mainstream, but have these incredibly fanatical following, isn't it? So he's, you know, he's got, he, he's got a freedom and I think they expect him to do things that sort of confound their expectations or, you know, um, that challenged them. And I think that this, you know, and also, I mean, I think Stephen has often said, you know, oh, I'm just from Hemel Hempstead and, you know, who cares? But actually, he's got an extraordinary family story as well. He really does. And, I had no idea. And he's a great, you know, and it's very similar in so many ways to the David Byrne and How Music Works book. He's a real, you know, he's a, a kind of intellectual about music, isn't he? He's just his thoughts about, you know, how music works, how. The industry works, you know, what it is to be an artist, the relationship with the fans, you know. So it's not, I think, you know, it's a real example of the way that music publishing has gone, where people want something a bit different. It's not just the normal Mars story, you know. Um, well, I think we're in that age now, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. With our movies or our TV shows. Yeah. Or, but we... We want that slightly multimedia. Or, we do, and also or, a lot of you know a lot of, and but and you know why why do we have to ask ourselves why do people want a book? What can the book give us that you know? I mean, the fact is, if you want to know about somebody, there's a million videos, there's a million Wikipedia entries and blogs and podcasts, and you know, but actually, only the book can sustain can get you that deep level of connection with the right with 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 the artist and and it's, yeah, and it's only the book that can tell a full story and for it to be sustained it's not so it's not just bitty bits of information it's you actually entering into a world and so i think more and more and more we're just trying to find you know things that work on that criteria because i think in the past you'd have to stuff things full of a million facts yeah. and hundred foot a million thousands of footnotes in a way that's not what really people it, want anymore in may they undertook a tour yeah i mean no because you've got all it's of on the that internet you know no so instead you've got to zero in on what you know what what, what what is the sort of human element what is the the dramatic you know part of this you know what can the what can the book bring that that the internet can't you know and 
Um, and we've definitely done that with Stephen Wilson. We've definitely done that with Stephen Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matthew, listen, an enormous pleasure speaking to Thank you. you. Thank yeah, you so fine. much for that. And um, we, we will be back. Yes. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review, share it with a friend, or plain old subscribe wherever you listen to it. To get you some conversation online, follow us on Twitter at GetcherPod. Until next time. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.